Welcome to episode 74 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I'm speaking to newly appointed Oxfam Australia CEO, Lynn Morgan, and Director of Programs, Anthea Spinx. Oxfam is, of course, one of Australia's and the world's biggest and most influential development NGOs. But it's had some rough times lately, with the decline in donations and, in Australia, the closure of the iconic Oxfam shops. In this interview, we discuss how the organisation is responding to the challenges it is facing. Lynn unveils Oxfam Australia's new strategy that focuses on the connection between poverty and climate change, champions the integral role Indigenous Australians play in Oxfam, and outlines how Oxfam will transform its operating model as the world of INGOs continues to be utterly redefined, as Lynn puts it. Of course, we also discuss COVID-19. In the last few weeks, Oxfam Australia has called on G20 leaders to cancel or postpone the debt repayments of developing countries to help their economic recovery from COVID-19. Oxfam has also been advocating for Australia to contribute just over $80 million to the UN's COVID-19 Global Humanitarian Response Plan. Anthea and I also discuss Oxfam's programming response. As we have in recent programs, we look at the localisation agenda and whether local actors are ready for the task at hand. In particular, we zero in at Cyclone Harold, which has hit some Pacific Island countries, and compare it to the response to Cyclone Pam in 2015, with the key difference that this time there are no international actors flying in. We've included links in the show notes to some of Oxfam's recent research and advocacy around COVID-19, as well as a link to dev policy analysis on donations to Australian development NGOs. For more coverage on COVID-19, check out the Dev Policy website at devpolicy.org. There is comprehensive coverage of the Pacific, but there are also some great articles from the Asia Foundation on the response in the Philippines and Nepal, and on the intersection of the pandemic with domestic violence and with civil conflict. We'll be going into more depth on some of those issues in some of our upcoming episodes. Please share any comments with us via our social media channels, which you can find at Goodwill Pod. We'd love to hear your feedback. Since recording this episode five days ago, the International Monetary Fund has held their April World Economic Outlook press briefing. As I mentioned earlier, in this episode, Lynn and I discuss calls to cancel the debts of developing countries in order to assist their economic recovery. In the press briefing this week, the IMF's Economic Counselor and Director of the Research Department, Geeta Gopinath, said the following. The moratoria on debt payments and debt restructuring may need to be continued during the recovery phase. Now, multilateral cooperation is vital to the health of the global recovery. To support needed spending in developing countries, bilateral creditors and international finance institutions should provide concessional financing, grants and debt relief. Collaborative effort is needed to ensure that the world does not deglobalise so that the recovery is not damaged by further losses to productivity. At the International Monetary Fund, we are doing our part. We are actively deploying $1 trillion in lending capacity to support vulnerable countries, including through rapid dispersing emergency financing and debt service relief to our poorest member countries, and we are calling on official creditors to do the same. We've included a link to the full transcript from the IMF's press briefing in the show notes. Enjoy the episode with Lynn Morgan and Anthea Spinks from Oxfam Australia. Lynn, thanks for chatting with me. Oh, pleasure. It's good to have the chance. 
So far, COVID-19 has mainly been a problem for rich countries, but increasingly it is making inroads into poorer countries. How worried are you about what the future holds? Oh, I think it's fair to say we're terribly concerned. There is no possible way, having witnessed what's happened in, you know, highly developed nation states and how catastrophic the impact's been there, one can only imagine what the impact might be in settings where there's no ability to limit proximity to other human beings, where there's unlikely to be water or capacity to maintain even basic infection control. So this is terribly concerning. I think we are yet to see the depth of impact. You've highlighted the plight of millions of people living in refugee camps throughout the world. And as you said, their isolation and social distancing aren't possible for those people. Are we already seeing outbreaks in refugee camps? Yes, we are. Now, obviously, at this stage, and this could as much be a feature of very poor um, health infrastructure within those settings, at this stage, we're seeing relatively small numbers. But what the epidemiology tells us, of course, is that those numbers will grow extremely rapidly, particularly where we have not only no capacity to treat in the way that might be done in a developed context, but neither do we have the opportunity uh, necessarily for the sort of rapid testing and, and other other interventions that have, as we've all talked about, enabled us to flatten the curve in a range of settings. That's just not practical in many of these settings. So you and Oxfam have called on the Australian government to support the UN's $2.01 billion COVID-19 global humanitarian response plan. What Mm. does the plan entail and why should we support it? I I think the first thing to be said is that Australia historically and in recent times has made clear that the, that there will be an effort made. I think the first thing to be said, though, from the Australian population or public's uh, pers- perspective is that this is something we must do both because it's an ethical and appropriate response to the needs of many of these communities, but also because there is a vital global requirement for us to do so if we want to contain the virus. So uh, depending on what motivates particular uh, individuals, they should understand that this is about making sure that we're all safe. And, you know, the, the, the angle that Oxfam has put on it is to say that None of us can be safe until we all are. So, yeah, what that would enable is the opportunity for us to get the sort of sanitation and water services, the kind of basic facilities that give these communities, if you like, a fighting chance. We, we have to accept, I think, that the impact is going to be, in many cases, uh, catastrophic. But I think that we need to do now what we possibly can in order that we don't look back and think, my goodness, you know, we, we should have anticipated this widespread loss of life that uh, we might otherwise expect will take place. How optimistic are you about getting the funding that you've asked the Australian government to contribute to that plan? 
Well, I think, you know, it has to be said, um, there has been a terrific effort being undertaken by uh, DFAT in their effort to try and ensure that the resourcing that is being spent in country is being targeted around a COVID response. And I want to really acknowledge the people who are working very hard to do that. But we have to accept that the Australian contribution uh, globally has fallen well short of our fair share for a long time. So, so if ever there was a moment to sort of reverse that trend, now would be it. But if your question is how optimistic am I, I'm unfortunately not as confident as I would want to be. And, you know, as I said, this troubles me because of the communities that we are effectively abandoning, but it also troubles me because it um, really will undermine the efforts globally to get a handle on this pandemic if we don't uh, step up now and make the sort of uh, interventions in some of these um, much, much poorer, much more precarious contexts. Um, we will very much regret that later, I suspect. You've also called on G20 leaders to cancel or postpone poor countries' debt repayments. Why? Yeah, so it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because people say, well, what, what can we do? What can we do to help these countries, these settings? And, and I think what has to be understood is we need to take every step we can to enable them to do exactly what we are doing in a domestic setting, which is attempting to provide basic income support to communities in the face of a massive economic collapse. So what we will see in countries that have historically fed the supply chain of developed nations through very precarious, very casualised, very, um, very insecure employment, these people have been plunged overnight into a situation of zero income. So by forgiving debt, what we enable those countries to do is to cash flow their citizens the same way our government has seen fit to do so, as have multiple other uh, governments. So, the, yeah, the forgiveness of debt is really a conscientious response to what is clearly a catastrophic, not only health phenomenon, but also economic one. I'll ask you the same question then that I asked on the UN response plan. How optimistic are you that G20 leaders will be willing to forgive debt? I think there's some good signs. You know, I think there are definitely, yeah, interestingly, the... the um, devastation that this pandemic has caused has really brought to the fore, I think, uh, the need to think scientifically, to think longer term, for public policy to be uh, clearly focused on the greater good. My sense is there are definitely some countries, some world leaders who are making it clear that it is in nobody's interest that we should come out the other side of this and have more than half the global population living in poverty and that there are interventions we could make now. And obviously the forgiveness of debt is, is, is critical to them. 
Okay, I want to talk about Oxfam specifically now. Oxfam is one of Australia's oldest and biggest development NGOs. I think a lot of our listeners will be interested to hear about your leadership of Oxfam. We know that recent analysis by Dev Policy shows that Oxfam has had a fall in donations since 2012, and recently you've had to close your Oxfam stores, which used to be iconic. How do you understand the challenges that are facing Oxfam? Well, as you can imagine, I've had a lot of time to talk about and think about that. <laughs> so, look, my uh, my view is that the world of INGOs have been utterly and substantially um, redefined by the events of the last, you know, uh, it could be the last decades, could be the last five years, depending on how you how you think about it. So, the need that Oxfam finds to um, examine its role, its purpose, its um, premise is one that, you know, most contemporary organisations actually are undergoing in some shape or form. We just have a very particular task to do in thinking about Given the history of development, given the basis of aid in terms of the way it's uh, been understood in in civil society here and internationally, and given, and this is a a practical but very meaningful shift in the environment, given the sort of proliferation of new forms of social investment and entrepreneurship and movement of capital – As an INGO today with a long history, if you weren't thinking very carefully about what and how you need to do things differently, then I have to say you're unlikely to see continued relevance because the movements around us have shifted and changed. You know, people's movements have become much more prominent in demanding and expecting resourcing for the causes that they represent. They are looking at INGOs and saying, where do you position relative to us? Social entrepreneurs are standing up interventions, demonstrating impact and moving capital on a sort of six-monthly basis where INGOs are referencing a history of decades and decades and decades. This is a common phenomenon (laughs) that organisations born of long, proud social histories do at some point or another need to think about how they want to be different. And we're no different. Oxfam will be required, both Oxfam Confederation but Oxfam Australia, to think very carefully about how we want to plug into that ecology of social investment, development, um, social justice mobilisation. I think it's exciting. I think it has, it's born of some very deep, both soul searching, but also economic impacts. You know, these things are really buffeting us in very painful ways. But at the end of the day, they present considerable opportunity, I think, to reconceptualise how we understand our relationship to, in our case, the world's poor. So it's a critical moment for Oxfam. I understand you are developing a new strategy. Can you Mm -hmm. share anything about that? Yeah, well, it hasn't uh, formally been endorsed by the board, and in fact, it will be this week, so I won't um, say too much in a detailed way, but what I will say is that there have been some very clear things that have been reinforced through our consultation process, both within the Oxfam Confederation, with our partners with whom we work globally and locally, um, 
about what they how they think Oxfam should respond to those challenges. And the themes that have emerged are unsurprising for those listeners who have a long history with Oxfam, but yet have a somewhat different I think, contemporary um, characterisation to them. So the first is that we continue to really drive awareness around the relationship between poverty and climate change. So, you know, we've always worked very strongly in the climate change space, but I think the climate emergency has now really, uh, the messages that came back to us from the people we spoke to was a, a sense of if not now, then when, and Oxfam has an established reputation. That's one. The other really high-level um, sort of thematic narrative that went through our process was about Oxfam Australia's relationship with Australia's first people. Now, we've always been strong partners and allies, we would like to say, um, but I think this most recent conversation has really wanted to think about how, as an organisation who is living in an unceded context, a context where the colonisation of this country, that project is unreconciled, we, we still have no treaty, First People are still advocating for the leadership of this country to make proper recognition and truth-telling. What are the implications of that for an organisation that flies a, a flag on a, on a global stage? And I think the conversation we've been having is, whose flag are we flying? <laughs> You know, we would like uh, to see much greater leadership of Australia's first people in Oxfam's role globally. We, we think that that's appropriate. We think that the um, calls that are made by Australia's first people in terms of, you know, the Uluru Statement and, and um, the Imagination Declaration and some of the other ways in which Australia's first people have sought to influence issues of policy, economic policy, ecological policy, policy around social connection and kinship, that is likely to form a much greater uh, part of Oxfam Australia's work. And then finally, I guess, like everybody else, we recognise our operating model will need to change and we want to be much more explicit about our role in enabling the Australian public to stand in allyship with communities and ensure that we're doing that in a way that is led by communities themselves. And again, that builds on a really long history that Oxfam's had of working in that way, but I think it's about recognising that we ultimately stand as a vehicle for Australians to make contributions that they think need to be made, but increasingly people recognise the need to be led by those whose experience it is and to practise good uh, allyship and fellowship. And so I think some of those features will inform our design. We'd love to have you back on the show in a few months to hear how that strategy <laughs> is going. Yeah. Thanks so much, Lynn, for your time. Pleasure. Thanks very much. That was Lynn Morgan, CEO of Oxfam Australia. Now to Anthea Spinks, Director of Programs at Oxfam Australia. Anthea, thanks for chatting with me. Thanks, Rachel. Happy to. Okay, so let's start with COVID-19. How is Oxfam responding to the COVID-19 crisis? Well, Oxfam, like many other organisations globally, um, is having to respond in ways that we didn't really imagine we would be able to, um, but we've got fantastic teams right across the world that are working with communities, they're working with their partners. Um, we've been able to 
I guess, realign some of our program work in places like Bangladesh, in places like Yemen, um, and including right across the Pacific, where we've got country teams that are, you know, finding very creative ways to support their partners and their communities, working on activities around community awareness, um, public health messaging. Um, we're translating a whole lot of materials into local languages. Oxfam, as some of your listeners may know, works a lot with partners and a lot of local partners um, who are also facing extremely challenging working um, conditions. So we're also working with them to make sure that they can still access their communities. Um, a lot of the work is really focused on the public health messaging. Um, Oxfam does a lot of work in water and sanitation and hygiene. Um, and so we're really, I guess, drawing on that expertise and that long knowledge that we have as well as the deep knowledge that we have of working with partners and communities across the globe. Um, but, Rachel, like everyone knows, it's not easy at the moment. It's a really, really challenging time. Um, but I get a lot of motivation and I feel really proud and inspired by the stories that I do hear from my colleagues on the ground. Um, we've got colleagues in Zatari refugee camp, for example, in Jordan, um, who despite all the challenges that they have and all the issues around, um, you know, their own mobility and um, access challenges have still been able to get in and support the refugee population there. Um, and where we can't, we've been able to support populations um, remotely. So I think this is really showing the versatility and the adaptability of the aid sector. Um, it's unfortunate that we're having to do so and it's really tragic and it's really devastating. Um, but I'm really, really proud and actually there's some great stories emerging of how our staff and our communities and our partners are still manage, managing to, to work and to respond. When you say you're realigning your projects, does that mean that some of your projects that existed pre-COVID-19 have been put on hold in favour of new projects? So it's a little bit of both. So some activities obviously um, have had to slow down or to pause or we just haven't been able to um, hold the activities to the schedule that we thought. Um, so, you know, so if we were doing some um, work with partners uh, and a whole range of activities that might have been working with alliances and networks, um, convening groups, we, we do a lot of work where we convene stakeholders. Um, so some of those activities have obviously had to pause or be done differently. Um, but there's also new activities that we're doing. So um, we've got new um, activities in East Timor, for example, where the team there have been doing an amazing effort um, to work really, really quickly on translating new materials. Um, they've basically been able to support a whole range of their partners. Um, we have a number of um, disability um, organisations in Timor as well and really, really fantastic work that we're doing with them in terms of looking at you know, the particular impacts and the particular challenges that people living with a disability might face during COVID. So there's a whole range of new activities as well as, unfortunately, some activities that have had to slow down or pause. Now, you're also responding to Cyclone Harold, which has hit Fiji and Vanuatu. Obviously, the international surge wasn't able to arrive in Fiji and Vanuatu like they did back when Cyclone Pam hit a few years ago. What's that been like to have to respond to a cyclone virtually? So that's a great um, question and it has been a challenge. Um, but I think for a few reasons, um, you know, Oxfam obviously, as I said before, does work with a lot of partners. So um, in some of the hardest hit areas in Vanuatu, for example, where we do actually have partner organisations on the ground, We've, they've been able to to mobilise, again, with limited, uh, with some challenges to it because of access, um, and access is always a problem post-cyclone. We know that the Pacific itself, in terms of 
Um, the logistics of the Pacific is always a challenge as well um, in terms of the remoteness of some of the locations. Um, but we do have a number of partners in Vanuatu in particular that have been able to mobilise and our team um, in Port Villa has been, you know, working with them remotely. Um, we've got some staff on the ground um, that have been able to work um, also alongside those partners in terms of looking at some of the needs assessment. Obviously, one of the challenges for for that response will be to maintain some of that assistance and really get um, supplies in, um, not just because of the current uh, or the, you know, the normal logistical challenges, but because obviously there's a whole range of um, new ones in terms of, you know, flights in and out of countries, etc. cetera. Um, but I'd also say that it's not the first time um, that, you know, we haven't had um, access to responses. Uh, and I think one of the things that, you know, does make Oxfam stand out um, and that we're really proud of is that we do invest a lot in our local partners in terms of their humanitarian capacity as well. Um, and I know many other organisations do that as well. And, and across the Pacific, it's been a very big focus, I think, the strategy um, of governments um, and the international community to support that localisation agenda in the Pacific. But there are also cases... Um, you know, I think back to I was deployed to Cyclone Nargis um, in Myanmar, but my deployment was from the lofty heights of a hotel room in Bangkok for the first three weeks because no one was actually getting access into that response um, for very, very different reasons. So so it's not the first time that the international community um, has faced access challenges for humanitarian personnel. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, we we know that we have strong local partners. We know that our country team, um, and so the Oxfam staff on the ground and the staff of many of the other organisations um, are really capable and really strong. And so I think it just demonstrates that the, um, the, the narrative that you need to have international assistance or international personnel flying in um, is really not always the case. Um, and I think that that this really demonstrates that it doesn't have to be the case. So to build on that, there were many criticisms of the international surge response to Cyclone Pam, particularly the overabundance of support and whether that actually caused more harm than good. Is it possible that the response to Cyclone Harold could go more smoothly because there's not an overabundance of international actors? I think that's going to be a counterfactual question that we'll never really know the answer to um, because I think there are a whole range of different challenges that the response to Cyclone Harold now has that we're obviously not there with Pam in terms of the COVID-19 overlay. So um, I'd like to think that the um, the answer to that might be yes, but I think that it's going to have to be one of those ones that we'll, we'll have some anecdotal stories about um, and I think we'll probably be able to do some empirical um, research and learning from, but just because of the completely different nature in which the context in which the Harold response is being um, implemented um, is, is I, I think, you know, something that we'll just have to kind of overlay with that. Um, but what, I, what we do know as well is that obviously since Cyclone Pam and through some of the activities of Oxfam, um, all the other agencies um, and indeed the Vanuatu government, is that the system is now a lot stronger in Vanuatu than it was um, before Cyclone Pam. Um, and so I think that's you know, that's really important um, because it shows that, that that approach to system strengthening and that approach to, I guess, the whole of the humanitarian system is really important. Um, and the Pacific has, I think, done some really great things in that regard and, and really led learning across the Pacific. And so there's been lots of 
exchanges and learnings from Cyclone Pam that were then taken forward in Cyclone Winston in Fiji. I think are now coming back full circle into Cyclone Harold in um, Vanuatu. So I think the fact that there was so much scrutiny on the response post-PAM will indefinitely have some benefit to the response now to Harold. Some initial reports coming out of Vanuatu, though, were saying that the response to Cyclone Harold is is significantly behind what the response to Cyclone Pam was at the same time post-Cyclone. If the system strengthening was occurring, how do we know if it's succeeded? Yeah, and I think, um, again, possibly only time will tell, but I think part of the challenge that we are seeing now is this overlay of COVID-19 um, in terms of what access people are having, um, how supplies are, are getting in, um, in terms of the the mobility issues that organisations have. Um, I know that lots of organisations have been able to move the stocks that they've got in-country, but some haven't. Um, so the, the question of the assessment and how speedily that assessment can be done and then activities happen, um, I think it is, a, it is a different world to PAM. So I think, and I mean, it'll be interesting because I know we'll, we'll do many evaluations post the cyclone and we'll see how this pans out. But I think it will show that that the um, capacity is there, the ability under which that capacity is now being deployed is hampered by a very unprecedented situation and circumstance. Um, and that's not to say that the, the capacity or the system is perfect. We know that no system is ever perfect. Um, but I think it would be, be really, really interesting to see that COVID overlay um, and also to try and do the sort of the, um, the variability testing to say, well, if that wasn't here, would it have been as, as, was the system as strong as we thought it would be? Um, so that would be a very, very hard test to, to analyse for or a, sort of a variable to analyse for. Um, but I'm sure there will be many of us in the sector that will give it a great go. Now, Oxfam is also a part of the Australia Humanitarian Partnership funded by the Australian government. Has the partnership been activated in response to COVID-19? So, yes. So, part of the very early response from the Australian government has been to to provide some funding um, to those agencies under the Australian Humanitarian Partnership. Um, And that has gone through um, our Disaster Ready Program, and that covers countries across the Pacific, um, and it also includes Timor-Leste. Um, And so that was a very quick um, activation by the Australian government um, in terms of boosting some of the funding into those countries and channelling that through the um, country committees. So that program actually has a really strong part of that system is the country committees that have been set up over the last couple of years that involve all of those organisations and work very closely with the um, National Disaster Management um, Institute or the National Disaster Management Organisation in the particular countries. So, um, so I think that was a, a great way of getting some fast boost into those programs. Obviously, some of the activities that um, and, and the, the, the activities are still having to be quite flexible. And I think DFAT and the Australian government have been um, really aware of that need for flexibility. So it's changing on a daily, weekly basis in terms of how activities can be done, what the needs of partners are, um, what activities are able to proceed as originally planned versus have to be re recalibrated and changed on a regular basis. Um, But I think the fact that that Disaster Ready and the Australian Humanitarian Partnership Program has already existed, there's a a strong relationship between the Australian agencies, there's a very strong relationship between the Australian agencies um, and DFAT, and there's a really strong relationship between the um, implementing partners and the and civil society and government stakeholders at the country level. So again, we know that there are challenges always in terms of coordination and how how a response to something 
um, so unusual as as um, COVID-19 um, and particularly COVID-19 and psychoinheritors we were just discussing in Vanuatu. Um, but that activation, I think, was a, was a very um, welcomed early boost of funds into the Pacific region in particular. There seems to be a lot more focus and funds going to the Pacific than Asia, despite the fact that it's likely that developing countries in Asia will be hit by COVID-19 a lot more than the Pacific will be. Are you concerned about Asia? So not just Asia, but globally. So, um, and Oxfam has been very um, open about this in terms of we feel that, that the Australian government, indeed all donors, need to take a global lens and a global response to this. Um, because as you've rightly said, the impacts um, will not be felt, felt evenly across um, across different communities. So, you know, I mentioned already before some of the concerns that we have in terms of being able to have partners move around and the kinds of activities that we're doing, some of the um, community awareness and the sensitising um, that we're doing in in places like Vanuatu or East Timor are uh, amplifold tenfold when we take that into the Rohingya refugee camps um, in Bangladesh, where Oxfam is also working and has already started to um, ramp up our COVID-19 activities. Um, but there are many other places um, globally that Indonesia, the Philippines, that we know um, the, the predictions of what the impact will be on uh, the health system, um, what that will mean for actually the health and the sort of, I guess, the, the mobilising of the health response. But Oxfam is also particularly concerned about what that means for the full economic and social systems that um, support communities. Um, and just last week, we also released, you know, some global analysis and the global briefing around the impact of COVID-19 and inequality. Um, and so, you know, the reason we did that is because we want to keep really at the front of people's minds that this is manifesting as a health um, pandemic and the health systems in many countries are, you know, severely depleted and, and a lot of them have capacity concerns and those countries are very open about their own capacity concerns. But the impacts of the health crisis are so much more far-reaching than that. Um, the impact that we'll have in terms of the, the economies of places, what that means for um, the people that are already living in very precarious and very fragile contexts. Um, and that's why Oxfam is taking a global view on that. That's why we really think that donors should take a global view on that. Um, we know that, that DFAP is aware of all the implications, particularly in the Asia region. We're really hopeful and confident that they will take a global view, um, that any contribution they make, particularly to the, um, the global humanitarian response plan, um, will take that view. Um, but, yeah, we are concerned, um, not just for the immediate impact of COVID in those countries, but most definitely the long-term impact as well and the um, what we know will be years of recovery in a lot of the places where Oxfam work. Initial reports coming out of Indonesia, Bangladesh, Myanmar, India are really concerning. How confident are you in the capabilities of your local partners in those countries to respond to this? So I was actually in Bangladesh just uh, Seems like only a couple of weeks ago now, it was in um, March, so I was really fortunate to meet with a whole range of Oxfam's local partners, not just the partners that we're working with in the um, Rohingya response, but also partners right across the country in our, in our programming. Um, and they are amazing. So we've got some really, really strong partners, some of them in public health um, areas in particular. Um, but we also know that 
those partners themselves are like all of us working in in really challenging conditions like you and I are both doing this interview from our living rooms those partners are, are finding their own working environments being changed where they're able to still move around depending on the restrictions that are being placed on them by their own um, authorities and their own jurisdictions. They are doing that. Um, they're really, really concerned for when they won't be able to do that and how will they actually support the millions of individuals that they're working with. Um, so I've got great confidence in the partners. Um, again, we've been working with many of these partners um, for a long period of time. Some of the partners I met in Bangladesh, Oxfam has been working with for close to a decade. Um, and we we know what their capacities are. They know what their capacities are. Um, in many other places where Oxfam is is more directly implementing, um, we that's where we do have the, I guess, the challenges of when we can't actually get staff moving around places ourselves. That's the reality not just for Oxfam, though. That's the reality for the whole of the um, humanitarian sector. Um, we're adapting and adjusting as best we can, but the reality is that, um, and it will force us into new and, and, you know, more imaginative and creative ways of working. We have remote management systems in place for lots of places in the world already. You know, people that have been working in and out of Somalia for years are really used to remote ways of working and, and um, remote operations, but this is different. So it's not the same as when you can... Um, still move in and out of your office, you've still got your full supply chains happening, um, you can still rely on those supply chains. I think it will spark a lot of innovation and creativity, but at a big cost in terms of what um, the challenges that we have to face and some of the programs that we might really, really want to be delivering um, that may have pauses to them or challenges to them or just things that we can't yet foresee. Oxfam has been pushing the localisation agenda for a long time, but as you say, in areas where you're directly implementing programs, surely this is a whole new challenge for localisation. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, um, a bit of an understatement. Um, but I also think that what it will do is um, so, so show what that, what that local capacity is. So we already know that there are places, for example, where um, we might have sort of um, earlier partnerships or newer partnerships with some local organisations, um, that will accelerate some of some of that relationship now in terms of um, being able to work with, with partners. It might mean that we're also exploring a whole new range of partners that work in areas, um, technical areas that maybe we haven't worked with before. Um, it will also, I think, um, mean that one of the lenses that localisation does look at is what is the expectation placed on, on organisations um, that may not have had, I guess, the lens applied to them before and that, that where, where is there a potential imbalance or unfairness in terms of that scrutiny that's applied to local organisations, particularly those that might be entering into this kind of work for the first time. So there are lots of organisations that work deeply in humanitarian response. So the Sulawesi um, earthquake a couple of years ago I think was a great example where over many years a, a group of local organisations had really cemented and developed their capacity as humanitarian responders um, with support from other organisations such as Oxfam. But there are many other organisations that may never have worked in a humanitarian setting before that are very local, very connected to community, very, very capable that are now finding themselves called upon and drawn upon and driven to actually support and respond to COVID in ways that they never really imagined. And so I think the onus on the localisation conversation is also to 
to recognise those strengths and really celebrate those strengths, as well as to understand that we will be working with partners now and they will be wanting to and really, um, really delivering on programs and we might be asking them to deliver on programs that they haven't delivered before. And so, so I think that's really, really exciting, but I think we can't um, use that to be unfair to partners in terms of what the expectations are that we're putting on them. And I think that would be damaging to localization if that is what was the case, because I see there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of really great, the exponential increase of the localization and the local capacity is, is a great possibility. And we can't exploit that, I think. Is that concern about an unfair distribution of work being shared by local partners? Or are they saying to you, we don't want too much on us? No, uh, not that I've heard so far, because I think they are um, very conscious of, of what role they can play and what role they really want to play. Um, so no, I haven't heard that. But I, I think it is something that we should be um, keeping a, a sort of, I guess, a, a watch on. And not just Oxfam, all partners, um, you know, organisations at the moment are working in ways that we hadn't worked before. Um, and so I think there is a, a responsibility that we have to make sure that that's something that we're, that we're aware of. Okay, I want to talk about the NGO sector in Australia and, and Oxfam particularly. So I know that at Oxfam you've had to cancel your trail walker events, obviously because of social distancing requirements. Um, how do you fundraise in a lockdown? Yeah, so it's a great question and we were um, was very unfortunate that we had to cancel that trail walker, but I must say the Oxfam supporters were so understanding of that. We had um, a, a number of messages um, coming through from people um, who obviously were disappointed as well because they had been training, um, you know, for months for it. Um, so it does make fundraising um, very hard. Um, but we also um, have seen that there are some supporters that, because they know what Oxfam does and they know the work that we do um, internationally, are actually sort of sending emails or calling up and saying, you know, I want to actually make it a donation now. We know that that's not the position for everyone, so we're also very aware of the financial challenges in the Australian economy um, and the impact that that will potentially have in the long term on fundraising. And it's obviously something that is concerned to us. It's concerned to the full sector. It's something the sector has been um, engaging with the Australian government on as well in terms of the, um, the charities situation or the not-for-profit situation in terms of the financial implications of COVID-19 on all of us. Um, and we know that the full impact is something we can only predict, but we can, you know, we, we don't really know what it's going to be um, in the short term and definitely not in the long term in terms of the economic forecast. Um, and this is being felt right across the Oxfam network. So we've got obviously countries um, right across the globe, which are large fundraising um, countries that have been in more weeks than we have in terms of their lockdown um, position. We can still fundraise and we've got a very a very deep and close relationship with our supporters. Um, we're trying to keep them as up-to-date as we possibly can about the work that Oxfam's doing globally because obviously that's what they, um, that's why they support us, that's why they engage with us. So to share as many of the stories with them as we can. Um, but we know it's a challenging fundraising environment and we know that it will, it will become more challenging um, over the next couple of months. Um, but we also know that there are a lot of Australians who care deeply about global issues. We know there are a lot of Australians that, if they can, they'll continue to support their organisation of choice. 
And we're definitely seeing that from some of the Oxfam supporters. We know that, you know, even just from what what I hear and see through social media, that there are a lot of people that are really taking a global and a community lens to this um, and not a, a sort of a shrinking into an individual view. Um, and so I hope that maybe that will will expand as well in terms of this real sense of community. Um, we're, so we're definitely seeing that in terms of what people are doing to support their local community and what people are doing to support local organisations. Um, and we know that there are a lot of people that care very, very deeply about global issues. Um, and as we see the spread of COVID into some of those really highly vulnerable communities, um, I hope that we'll also see that generosity coming from the Australian public. I know that Oxfam has been advocating for Australia to support the global COVID response in the order of $80 million. I know that there are also calls on G20 leaders to clear the debts of developing countries to help them recover. So certainly you're doing a lot of advocacy internationally. Is there any domestic advocacy happening on how the government can support the charitable sector in Australia to recover from this? Uh, yes, so there's been quite a lot of work and that's been led um uh, you know, really strongly through the peak bodies of the, of the Australian charity sector, both the international sector and the domestic sector, uh, and we've played our, our part in that um, in terms of work that we had done through and prior to the JobKeeper package, um, work that's continuing as we sort of look through the full economic implications um, of COVID for the sector. Um, because we know that, you know, we'll all have slightly different implications of the sector for us, um, but, but we'll all be hit in some way, shape or form, both the domestic sector and the, and the international not-for-profit sector. So there's been a lot of engagement um, and a lot of sector advocacy in that regard. Okay, so to close then, you've already touched on the fact that the Australian public is being generous and you have a very loyal supporter base, but what would you like the Australian public to know about uh, the work that organisations like Oxfam are doing and why they need to support it? Thanks, Rachel. I think that's a really, really great question to close with. And I think what I'd like the Australian public to know is that um, we know that this is not easy, but Oxfam and so many other organisations have deep capacity. Um, we have really extensive relationships with partner organisations, with government organisations where we work. Um, we hear and see the stories of communities every day um, and those staff uh, are the frontline workers in our um, eyes and in our book um, and the work that they are doing, um, despite all the challenges that they have, their commitment and their passion to that, um, to be able to get out there every day and do a job is actually making a difference. So um, we are yet to see the full brunt of the pandemic in some of these countries that we've been talking about. Um, and we don't know where that's going to lead. But what I do know is that the partners that Oxfam works with, um, the communities that we work with and the staff that we work with um, will be doing anything that they can to mitigate the impacts to support communities as they're being uh, devastated by COVID-19. Um, and on the other side, organisations like Oxfam, the NGO sector, the local NGO sector will be more critical than ever to help rebuild, to re-establish the social fabric, um, to, to deal with the ingrowing and the sort of ever-pervasive issues of inequality and poverty in countries, um, and that that sector is a critical part of civil society in so many communities um, and so many countries globally that the NGO sector will most likely 
be different, as will all industries and all parts of community be different. Um, but we will be there, and that will be even more important, I think, in terms of actually helping to recover and rebuild post-COVID-19. Great. Thanks, Anthea. Thanks, Rachel. That's it for episode 74 of Goodwill Hunters with Lynn Morgan and Anthea Spinks from Oxfam Australia. As always, please share your feedback on any of our social media channels, which you can find links to on our website, goodwillhunterspodcast.com.au. And for more great coverage on COVID-19, visit devpolicy.org. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. See you next week.